Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 24, we find Matthew writing, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. In this chapter, we've gotten a glimpse at the beginning of the chapter of the glory of the king in verses 1 through 13. And then we saw the power of the king in verses 14 through 21. And now we are once again reminded of the humility of the king in verses 22 through 27. Jesus is going to use the visit of a tax collector as an opportunity to reinforce his claims as king and then teach the importance of what it means to be a good citizen. And so we begin with the temple tax in verse 24. Look what it says. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Now you'll recall that Capernaum was the headquarters for Jesus' ministry. It was also not simply the headquarters for Jesus, but it was the hometown for Peter and for James and for John. And in the ancient world, you may or may not know what the temple tax was all about, but the temple tax was required of Jewish males for over the age of 20, and the money was used for the upkeep and the maintenance of the temple. According to the tractate Shekalim in the Talmud, the temple tax was collected almost certainly during one of the Jewish festivals, either Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacles. It was during one of the major feasts. And you'll remember that the Lord commanded it based on Exodus chapter 30, verses 13 through 16. If you have a Bible, you, you might want to turn there. The tax was a reminder of God's claim on their lives. But to the religious Jew living in the time of Jesus, the half shekel was a ransom for the soul. One half of the money was meant to provide the ransom. The other half of the money was used in the maintenance of the temple. The offering itself in the Jewish culture and the Jewish society was called the ransom money in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. So in Exodus chapter 30, verse 11, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall have a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what every one among those numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the weight of the sanctuary. That is 20 gira. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Now, by the way, in the first century, that half shekel coin would have come to about seven and a half grams. It would have been about two days wage for a typical worker. And then in Exodus, it says everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. And then the instruction said, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give the offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So according to the book of Exodus, note, the rich shouldn't give more. The poor shouldn't give less. Why was that? And the reason is because this is an invitation for everyone to participate. That becomes part of the point. The original tax was used, by the way, to provide the silver sockets on which the tabernacle poles were placed when they built the tabernacle in the wilderness. The money was to be a reminder that they were purchased from slavery. They were redeemed by God. And so silver in the Bible becomes the metal, if you will, of redemption. And in the Bible, redemption always included at least three elements. Number one, to pay the ransom price for something or someone. Number two, to remove a slave from the marketplace. And number three, to affect a full release. Once the release was done, you were genuinely, truly, legitimately, permanently free. And so it becomes a type and a picture for Christians that we as Christians are purchased not by perishable things like gold or silver, but the New Testament is going to make it a point that you've been purchased with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. So the passage doesn't teach that you can buy your salvation, but rather that your salvation is purchased by the only person who could afford the purchase price. You see, you don't have enough money and you don't have enough resources in order to satisfy God's righteous requirement for your soul. Only Jesus can do that. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul writes, 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us as it is written, cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. And in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus pays. It's Jesus who removes us from the marketplace of sin. I want you to capture that thought just for a moment. You've been taken off the market. It's like if you put a home up for sale and someone purchases the home. It's been taken off the market. It's no longer available and neither are you if you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so the half shekel that was due could be paid with two drachma or two denarius. And it says... The word that's, that's going to be used in our text is stator. It's the only t- time in the, in the New Testament where the word stator appears when it's talking about a piece of money later on. But a stator, we happen to know, was a Greek measurement of unit that would re- refer to uh, four drachmas and four denarius, or what was called a tetradrachma. And after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Romans, knowing this Jewish tradition, if you will, confiscated money from Jewish adults to purchase a pagan temple and then demand that the temple that would be destroyed on the temple mount, that they would tax Jewish people to build a pagan temple and then Pay for the upkeep of that temple. And so there's going to be a crisis that will take place later in in the Jewish life and in the Jewish culture. But here we see some lessons that the teacher gives us in verses 25 and 26. Look what it says. He said, yes, that is to the question, does your master or your teacher pay the temple tax? He says, yes. And when he had come into the house, because Jesus wasn't there, when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said, from strangers. Then Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now, Peter acknowledges that Jesus as an observant Jew living in that culture and at that time makes the contribution for the temple tax. Now, remember, even though Jesus isn't there, he hears the whole conversation, just like now. We may not sense the physical presence of Jesus, but he's here. He hears the words that I'm speaking and the thoughts that are going on in your head. He hears the conversation in the car when you're driving over. He hears the conversation that's taking place in in wherever it is that you happen to be. He knows everything. He understands 
each and every conversation. So in light of Peter's conversation with the tax collector, Jesus asks Peter, what do you think, Simon? Now, in a few weeks, we're launching our small groups, and there is a small group kiosk that's out there for everyone who wants to participate in small groups. But during the course of the sermons in, in the future, I'm going to be making some special notes for our small groups. I'm going to say, hey, by the way, if you belong to a CSD group, pay attention right now to what I'm about to say. When Jesus asks a question in the Bible, is it because he doesn't know the answer? What do you think, class? It isn't because he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer. When Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? In a way, I feel like I'm reading a stand-up comedy routine. When I first read this and I started thinking about it, I started to laugh out loud. When Jesus asks what we think, it isn't because he's stuck for an answer or that somehow his thoughts or his, our opinion will matter to him. By the way, if Jesus says to you, hey, let me have your opinion on the upcoming election. Let me have your opinion on the state of the culture. Let me have your opinion and then fill in the blank with whatever subject you want. And because the Lord never needs advice, whenever he asks our opinion, I'm going to suggest something to you. It's to steer our thoughts to God's voice and God's word and God's heart. Does that make sense to you? When Jesus is asking your opinion about something... Our automatic response should be, Lord, what's your opinion on the subject? Lord, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And the moment that you ask that question, what do you think, Lord? And you don't hear anything. This should drive you into all of those areas in your Bible where Jesus has spoken on the subject. It's interesting, he says, what's your opinion, Peter? From whom do the kings of the earth take custom or, or taxes from their sons or from strangers? Now, you've got to remember that in ancient times, kings exacted tribute from their subjects. And you might think, well, didn't Jesus say, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God the things which belong to God? And the answer is yes. But remember that the temple tax is a tax that's imposed by Jews for Jews. The issue isn't whether or not a person should pay the tax, but it's a reminder about motives. Offerings in the Old Testament were free will offerings that were to be given from the heart. Just like now, in, the, in, in at least one sense. Christians aren't, there, there's no command or demand for you to give. You don't have to give anything at all to this church under obligation. But the Bible says that we as Christians are to be generous. 
We're to be generous in our heart and we're to be generous in our souls. In the Bible, according to to the book of Corinthians, when Paul was addressing this particular issue, he said that each person should give according to their heart, what they think or what they purpose in their own heart. So the person who says, I don't want to give anything, that reveals something about your heart. And when a person says, I want to give everything, but I can't, that reveals something about your heart. Jesus is basically making the statement that no son in any kingdom marches into the throne room of his father and then pays his father's tax. Jesus is in effect saying that he is tax exempt. He is God's son. He doesn't pay ransom. He is the ransom. And so the Lord is going to provide Peter with two lines of reasoning. The first line of reasoning is going to be why he shouldn't pay the tax in verses 25 and 26. And then why he will in fact pay the tax in verse 27. So why is Jesus exempt from the tax? Because he's the hope of Israel. He's the son of God. The Jewish people were God's subjects, but he is God's son. Jesus is from another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is free of the earthly kingdom. Jesus has no obligation to pay the tax. If he does so, he does so because he is willing to forego his freedom. He is willing and voluntarily willing to make a sacrifice. And the people of Israel were God's subjects, including Peter. And so the temple tax was a picture, remember, of redemption. And so the Lord Jesus is our redemption. He's our offering. He will die for our sin. He will rise from the dead for God's glory and for our good. Everyone wants to go to heaven. You know the rest, but nobody wants to die. We've all heard the saying that only two things are certain, death and taxes. But for many people, they're not so sure about taxes. But here becomes part of the point. Jesus is going to do exactly what has to be done in order for you to go to heaven. He will become the sacrifice. He will make the payment. There was a little boy who was caught in some mischief and he was asked by his mother, how do you expect to get to heaven? And the little boy thought for a moment and he said, look, I'm just going to run in and I'm going to run out and I'm going to run in and I'm going to run out until someone says, for goodness sake, come in or stay out. And then I'll just go in. We laugh, but it doesn't work that way, does it? It isn't like you can knock on the door or you can open the door and run in and run out. How indeed does someone go to heaven? And the right answer, according to the Bible, Jesus will make a provision 
by means of a miracle. And that's exactly our story, isn't it? He's going to make a provision by means of a miracle. Before human beings were ever created, God prepared a place called heaven. And before human beings ever sinned, God envisioned a plan that the Bible calls redemption. Before Adam and Eve broke their promise to God by eating fruit from a tree, God prepared another tree that would be cut down and used as a beam to nail Jesus and lift him up and suspend him between heaven and earth. Heaven was never an afterthought in the mind of God. And just like God prepared hell for the devil and his angels, God prepared heaven with you in mind. And make no mistake about it, he wasn't just generically thinking about everyone in general. I'm absolutely convinced that he was thinking about you. Specifically. Personally. Intimately. Don't you ever wonder whether or not you're going to go? I read the story of a child of God who was seriously ill and he lacked assurance of salvation and he said to his physician, doctor, even though I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm going to admit it, I'm a little bit afraid to die. Exactly what happens when you die? And the surgeon who was a believer thought for a moment and then he replied, you know what, I'm afraid I can't give you an exact answer to that question. And then as he walked across the room to leave, he desperately wished he could say something comforting. And pausing briefly before opening the door, he heard the sounds of scratching and whining on the other side. And suddenly he realized that he'd left his car door open and his little pet dog had escaped out of the car and was whining and scratching and whining and scratching at the door. And suddenly he realized something that he could share with his patient. In a flash, he was awakened to the scriptural truth and he tried to put it into his words, into words. And he turned to the man and he said, hey, you know what? So he opens the door, the dog jumps in and jumps up. It's a, it's a little pet poodle. I know it's not a real dog, but it's a dog, okay? And so the dog jumps up on him and starts licking him and, 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 and so glad to see his master. And the doctor turned to him and he said, you know what? This dog has never been in this room before. This is a patient's waiting room or a, a, an examination room. I've never let the dog in. He had no idea what was inside. Yet when I opened the door, he sprang in without fear because he knew that his master was here. And as Christians, we're not always told about everything about the glories that await us on the other side of death. We're not told everything about everything, but we're told the most important thing. That Jesus is there. That Jesus is there. And then he says, the sons are free. In what sense? Sons 
don't have unrestricted or unlimited freedom, but they're certainly free from the obligations imposed on subjects. A son isn't free to dishonor his father. A son isn't free to disobey his father. Clearly, the freedom that Jesus is talking about isn't the freedom to do what's wrong. It's the freedom to do what's right. And yet Jesus doesn't want to be a stumbling block to the weak. We know that because of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul says, Be careful how you exercise your freedom not to become a stumbling block or the object which is going to trip each other up. In 1 Corinthians 10.23, we read, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Another translation says, everything is lawful, but not everything is edifying. In Peter, 1 Peter 2.16, we read, live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And so in verse 27, look what it says. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you've opened its mouth, you're going to find a piece of money. That's the word stater, by the way. That when In the New King James, it says, you'll find a piece of money. It's an actual specific Greek amount of of money that was used to describe a certain denomination of money. He says, then take it and give it to them for you and for me. Now, what's interesting is the Lord Jesus is, is exempt from paying the tax by virtue of his identity, by virtue of his mission. But he realizes that not everyone is going to recognize his identity or embrace his mission. He is going to pay the tax. So why will Jesus pay the tax? He gives the reason right there. To avoid offense. To exercise voluntary humility. He's willing to subject himself to earthly law. Jesus doesn't obey simply out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of love and care. Jesus is going to do it to fulfill all righteousness, to serve as an example to, to men. He could have paid the tax absent the comment or the miracle, but by declaring that he's free and exempt from the tax, he proves his payment is willing and voluntary. And it, again, it becomes a type and a picture of a voluntary atonement for sinful human beings. He doesn't have to die for you, but he will. He will. By the way, Jesus holds the temple in, in, a, in a high view. Jesus refers to the temple as his father's house. You'll remember elsewhere in the New Testament, he will come in and he will overturn the tables of the money changers. And you might be thinking, why? Is he because he's philosophically opposed to merchandising in the temple? No, that, that really wasn't the point. The point that Jesus is making is that the religious leaders are misrepresenting God to the world. 
That's what Jesus is offended by. The church isn't a place to make money or take advantage of people. The church is supposed to be a place that represents what God is really like to a watching world. And that's who you are. You are the church. You will represent Jesus to the watching world. He calls it his father's house and a house of prayer. And Jesus will benefit from the temple. He will worship at the temple. He'll bring sacrifices that are required by the law and taught at the, at the courts and the steps of the temple. Jesus will set aside a, a certain portion of his income for the temple's support. By the way, what happens if Jesus refuses to pay? He's already told us. He will unnecessarily offend some. And by the way, they might feel that Jesus isn't paying his fair share. What a ridiculous thought that is. Jesus, you're not pulling your weight. Yeah, how lame is that statement? And if Jesus failed to support the government or the temple... And if everyone followed his example, the government would collapse. And I know many of you are thinking, and what would be bad about that? I get it. But the reason is, as disgusting as what I'm about to say, a wicked, evil, and corrupt government is better than no government at all. You might not even agree with that. But a wicked, evil, and corrupt government is better than chaos. So Jesus is going to demonstrate good citizenship. And Jesus, by the way, when you read this text, you go, hey, lest we offend them. You go, hey, wait a minute, I've been reading the, the New Testament and I've been following along in Matthew. And Jesus seems pretty open to offend people on a number of different occasions. When will Jesus offend the religious leaders? He offends the religious leaders when he says, God sent me here. I came from heaven with a message from God, on a mission from God, to, pro to provide a mechanism for you. Even if others are offended by the truth, Jesus is going to tell the truth. Jesus is never, ever willing to compromise the truth to avoid offense. I've told you many times that on my radio program, I had a guy named Sammy Tanago who wrote a book entitled, God Loves You, My Muslim Brother. And of course, we're living in a time and we're living in a world and we're living in a culture that many of us are tempted to view Muslims with fear and suspicion and dread. But my friend Sammy Tanago has the right view that these are men and women that Jesus loves and that he died for and that he's trying to find a way not to push them away, but to draw them together. And I said something I'm sure that was rude. And Sammy said, my brother, could you please confine your offense to the gospel? What a beautiful way of rebuking me. 
Could you please confine your offense to the gospel? If you're going to be offensive, could we just limit it to what God says about Jesus and the cross of Calvary? And I immediately knew that this was something for me because, and I immediately knew that it was something that I need to do. When Jesus said, eat my body and drink my blood, you'll remember that the religious leaders were offended. No observant Jew would ever promote or participate in cannibalism. When Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise from the dead, he offended people. So why is Jesus now concerned about not causing offense? And I'm going to suggest something to you. Because Jesus doesn't hesitate to break man-made rules or violate human traditions. But he's going to observe everything that an observant Jew observes according to the scriptures. Jesus is exempt from the tax. But he's willing to pay the tax to make a point. And what is that point? And the point is to sacrifice in order to love. That's the point that he's willing to make. I'm willing to make a sacrifice in order to have an opportunity to care. It may be that some of the disciples felt that they didn't have to pay the tax. After all, the temple and its leaders were involved with all kinds of illegal activities. They were involved with all kinds of things that were dishonoring to God. As a matter of fact, if we could all go back in time and space, we could prove that there were corrupt activities. Christians face the same challenge. Why should we pay a corrupt government to limit our freedom? Why should we pay a corrupt government to restrict our liberties, to harass us and oppress us? Why should we pay government schools to indoctrinate our children to hate God and reject Christ and promote unrestricted sexual expression? Why should we do that? One Bible writer says, quote, but Jesus did not think non-payment of taxes was an impressive statement of faith. Jesus would rather resist the world at other points, unquote. Christians are free to do what's right. We are free to do what's right. We are free to resist evil. We are free to do what's good. All things are lawful for the Christian, but not all things encourage, not all things edify. And so the Lord Jesus argues that even though the sons are free, lest we offend them to avoid an unnecessary offense. And the person looking for an excuse not to pay lawful taxes isn't going to find it in this passage. There are many miracles recorded in the Bible. But do you know what this miracle 
is singular and distinctive. What is it about this miracle? This is where I would say, small groups, pay attention. What is distinctive and singular and specific about this miracle? Guess what? This is the only miracle recorded in all of the New Testament where Jesus benefits in part from the miracle. And by the way, it isn't an exclusive benefit. It's going to help Peter out. This miracle is the only miracle that not only ex- that benefits Jesus, this is the only miracle in the Bible that involves money. And I think that that's interesting in and of itself because we live in a culture and a society where you would think that every miracle involves money. And Peter will benefit from the miracle. Think of all the miracles in the, in the scriptures that involve Peter. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Peter walks ever so briefly on the waters of the Galilee with Jesus saving him the moment that he begins to sink. Peter has this great catch of fish. When Jesus is taken by the the temple guard, Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high servant or the, the servant of the high priest. And the last miracle that Jesus performs is to fix the mistake of a misguided disciple. He puts the ear back on. Pats Malchus on the head. Dude, sorry about that. (laughs) Gonna make it right. We've got a little bit of a setback. By the way, it's not the last miracle that Jesus will perform for, for Peter, though. He's gonna be supernaturally delivered in the book of Acts from prison by an angel. And when I read this story, I wondered if Jesus manufactured the money out of thin air. I wonder if Jesus caused somebody on the Sea of Galilee to lose a shekel of tire that somehow a week's wage fell overboard and then this particular fish swallowed it. Who minted the silver? Who engraved the the coin? Who lost the coin? What are the odds of Peter making his way to the shore, casting in a hook and a line, and then finding the exact fish with the exact amount of money in order to pay the tax. What does this tell you? In in your heart, don't you begin to understand that Jesus not only hears every single conversation, but that he is in control of all of the events that control the universe. By the way, no visit to Israel is complete unless you visit the Galilee and have lunch at Kibbutz Ginotzar. Make sure you order St. Peter's fish. Make sure you order it with the head on. Make sure you check inside of its mouth. You may never, you may never, you might be surprised at what you might find. Why did Jesus, why did Jesus, why did Jesus do all these things for Peter? I'm going to suggest to you the simple answer for Peter's good and for God's glory. Jesus is going to perform a miracle to prevent offense and to help Peter 
Some even Bible writers have, have suggested, look at Jesus, look at poor Jesus. Jesus doesn't even have a half a shekel. He doesn't even have the money. By the way, are you left with the impression that Jesus is terrified and worried about how the provision is going to be made? Not even once. Jesus voluntarily surrenders his rights to prevent offense. Jesus surrenders voluntary rights and freedoms just for the opportunity to minister and serve. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians and the Romans about their freedoms, he begged them to not use their freedom outside of the context of love. And our freedom never includes the right to hurt people. We submit to God. We resist evil. We do no harm. But there's something else. We want to positively do good. Jesus had every right to boycott the temple, but he doesn't. Read, boycott the government, boycott the schools, boycott the NFL, boycott the political parties. I'm not going to do it. And then you hear Jesus whisper in your ear, what do you think about the Republican Party? What's your opinion of the Democratic Party? And then you remember today's sermon. Hey, I think this is Jesus' way of, of, of asking, Jesus, what's your opinion? Jesus, what's your opinion? How can I know your mind and your heart on this subject? We live in a broken world governed by broken people who value sin and who promote sin and who devalue virtue. So how do we choose our battles? How do we get along? When do we resist? When is compromise acceptable? And when is compromise contemptible? Remember, remember, remember. Jesus will never set aside truth to avoid offense. But Jesus will set aside personal rights and freedom in order to just simply have an opportunity to love people and care about them. So, we're free to submit to God. We're free to resist evil and do good. Look again at the text. Jesus says, From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From the sons or from strangers? Peter says, strangers. And then Jesus says, the sons are free. You're free. You're free to mourn sin and celebrate righteousness. You're free to sacrifice rights in order to offend, to avoid offending others. You're free to suffer personal loss if it might mean that God wants somebody else to have something. And we are free. We are free to obey God's word. Martin Luther said, 
A Christian is perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject of all, subject to all. How do you live in that world? You already do. You're a citizen here, but you're a citizen there. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In everything, charity. Let's pray. We're going to have communion in just a moment. Lord, we're so grateful for your love. Lord, we're so grateful for your sacrifice. Lord, we know that communion is an is a visible sign of an, of an invisible grace. Lord, we know that when we take these elements and we remember why the sacrifice of Jesus took place, it was for the purpose of producing humility. Lord, in the New Testament, it says that on the night before his crucifixion, he took bread and broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be given for you. Again, the Bible says he gave thanks and praise and he took the cup and he says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which will be shed for the forgiveness of sin. He said, take it and drink it. Lord, we know that, that when we take this bread and when we drink this cup, it isn't just simply a religious exercise that we involve ourselves in, but rather it's to remind us of what Jesus has done to produce humility in our heart and in our life, to make hope come alive, and to inspire us to do things that are gonna be honoring and pleasing to you. And then it causes us to remember, Lord, what Jesus said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Communion lifts our longings and prompts us to look to heaven. And Lord, we pray that we would do just that. Lord, we pray that the sacrifice of Jesus would produce what it was always meant to produce, not just simply the forgiveness of sin, but a humility of heart and a hope in our heart and an inspiration in our heart to be the kind of men and women that you want us to be. Jesus' name. You can take the communion anytime that's convenient for you. We're going to sing this final worship song. And as we sing and as we give thanks, remember what Thanksgiving is supposed to do. 
It causes us to look to heaven. It creates in us a new hope. In Jesus' name, let's sing.